Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 91 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Felicia Day, creator and star of the hit web series The Guild. She's also appeared as an actress in the Joss Whedon short film Dr. Horrible Singalong Blog, as well as on TV shows such as Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Supernatural. Her latest project is Geek and Sundry, a YouTube channel offering a wide range of geek-themed videos. Then stick around after the interview as guest geeks Matt London and Kate Matthews join us for a panel on YouTube for Geeks. Alright, so let's get to our interview. Alright, so we're here with Felicia Day. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Okay, so you have uh, this new book out, The Guild's The Official Companion, that you wrote the introduction for. You want to just tell us a bit about that book and how it came about? Uh, yeah, actually, I worked quite a bit on the book. Um, the book came about because Titan, the publisher, came to me after doing The Dr. Horrible Companion, and they said, it seems like a natural fit for us to do a companion for your series. And... Um, I have so much on my plate that um, I, I was almost ready to say no, but then I thought, hey, how awesome would it be to have a book? And and as I saw on the horizon that the show would be wrapping up after season six, um, I thought it would be an amazing way to sort of wrap up our whole journey in this amazing uh, six years that we had on a show that started in my garage and has become you know very well known amongst a, a certain type of internet using geek. I, I was so pleased to work with them for the last several months on the book. We had a, a great uh, interviewer who interviewed everyone firsthand. And then I worked really hands-on with the publisher to get all the uh, photos right and, and add a lot of things that uh, fans have never seen before, like uh, behind-the-scenes pictures and, and original writing and, and all sorts of extra fun stuff. Did anything that came out in those interviews surprise you, uh, your uh, fellow cast members said? It was really nice, actually, to have uh, their perspective on everything, to be honest with you, because we, we've been running so fast on the treadmill. There's nothing that we've done in this show that was ever easy. We never had too much help. <laughs> we were always doing it pretty much ourselves, me and my partner, Kim Evie. She is uh, an, an amazing person, and, and she and I never had a full-time employee, really, uh, to help us with this thing that became so incredibly huge. So I never really actually had the time to sit down and, and ask the, even the cast what they thought about the show. So it was really heartwarming, a lot of the, the things that they said to the interviewer, especially since we all knew at the time of the interview that um, the show was going to come to an end in the format that we've been doing it. So everyone has a really nice reflective quality on the show without being too far away from it, really. A lot of the interviews took place right after we finished filming season six. So everything's fresh on their minds. And, and it made me realize what an amazing journey we've been together, taken together and how, I guess, if there is any regret in my life, it's that I didn't enjoy the journey a little bit more while we were doing it. But honestly, we were against so many odds. The odds were so against us so many years that there was no time to really pause and look at uh, all the things we'd done that nobody else had done because it was just too too hard. 
Well, yeah, it really struck me the way that the book describes how you only had a couple hundred dollars at the beginning as a, as your budget, and that you would actually leave uh, the guild bookmarks in public restrooms to try to uh, you know promote the show. I was wondering, does that does that work? Uh, did you ever have anyone say, "Oh, I was in a restroom and I came across a bookmark, and now it's my favorite show"? <laughs> I don't know if I ever got specifically the bathroom, but I did. Honestly, did I would carry a stack of about a hundred bookmarks around with me every single place I went, and I would leave a lot of bookmarks in bathrooms because hey, you have nothing else to do in there, really. I would leave them at coffee shops. I would uh, leave them at auditions, and I, I was to me there was nothing too small. Uh, there was no uh, venue or effort that was not worth my time because every single person. Uh, when you're starting from zero, every single person involved in your in your project, that's that's a person that wouldn't have been involved otherwise. Well, yeah, you mentioned the the challenges, and that was another thing that really struck me in this book is that from the outside, your career has seemed just like one success after another. There's Buffy and then uh, Dr. Horrible and the Guild and uh, Geek and Sundry, but this book really paints this picture of all these of these challenges uh, that you've encountered working in Hollywood. Do you just want to talk a little bit about a bit about what some of those challenges have been? Yeah, to me, it's so funny because in my world, I'm always struggling. I'm always the underdog. I'm always the person that is going to be passed over. And I don't know if that's just something that I hold on to from my past as sort of the actor who was uh, rejected a lot. But at the same time, as somebody who lives in Hollywood and works in Hollywood as an actor still and works in the web, and still to this day, people in mainstream Hollywood don't really understand or acknowledge uh, the web as being anywhere near equal or on par with what traditional Hollywood makes. There is sort of a, uh, not a snobbery, but a a lack of understanding and credence given to uh, people who work on the web, even to this day. And so that mentality kind of accompanies me with everything I do, because I still have my foot in a world that doesn't see what I do on the web as something legitimate. Now, from the creator side, a lot of the creators do uh, love the idea of working on the web, uh, working without the gatekeepers and all the uh, the business and, and all the sort of cookie cutter um, parameters that people are kind of forced to work in to make things in Hollywood. So on the creator end, I've definitely recognized by a lot of uh, what we've done with the show has been recognized by a lot of writers and actors and creatives. But from the business side, the gatekeepers, they don't see the stakes as being high enough for them to sort of acknowledge them and give as much credence, although that's changing, but very slowly. So I guess that's where the underdog um, sort of mentality comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've talked about how when you first got to Hollywood, people told you you should have plastic surgery and you were cast like four times in a row as quirky secretaries and stuff like that. Yes. Early on, I was told to get a nose job. I needed to fix my teeth. I needed to you know, get bigger boobs. I was told this by people who were agents and managers and people who manage talent and casting directors and all this stuff. So, you know, that certainly can get to you. But I I did have enough of a strong sense of self to, to know that I didn't want to change myself. So, I, But I did change myself to bring out the quirkiness, bring out the sort of oddballness. And that that became more saleable, but ultimately less fulfilling because I was becoming a caricature of something that I was. It's like me only being 
the geek girl. Like I, I'm actually, you know, I'm I, that's what people know me for. But hopefully, they know me as a three dimensional person versus just a superficial uh, cliche of somebody who likes geek things. That that's you know what I think Hollywood tends to do to artists because it's such a quick pace uh, environment to be in. And there's so many people trying to get in that you can only kind of look at the surface of everything uh, most of the time. And uh, it made me very unhappy to feel like a large part of myself was not being represented in what I was doing with my career. So that's why I sat down and wrote the guild one day. It was really about just trying to find myself again and have ownership over myself. Mm -hmm. Well, and you, you just had a piece on your blog about how in the new Star Trek movie, there are few roles for women and even hundreds of years in the future, all the most powerful uh, officers in Starfleet are all white men. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't. I mean, listen, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit, and I, I admire J.J. Abrams and and Lindelof, Damon Lindelof, and I mean, I had a great time. But yes, as you know, it was something that surprised me, in that I've always felt Star Trek was more egalitarian, um, or at least I had always projected myself into that world as women having a very strong voice and strong representation. I mean, I, I'm a next generation girl, so there are a lot of amazing female characters on that show. And that was always what I kind of approached the Star Trek as. And maybe I'm hypersensitive about it, but I, I think it, maybe it's just the people in charge on that movie didn't note it. I don't think they deliberately didn't include women extras around that table, but someone did. And someone didn't think consciously that this is what we're showing the world this is what we're showing that this world is. And it's mostly, you know, white guys. So uh, I think it's perfectly valid to sort of put a spotlight on that and ask ourselves, is this really what we want to show people uh, and, and, and convey that these are our, our, our kind of where our culture in the future would go or what we want to convey today? Because really it's all the unspoken unconscious things in media that we look at that formulate how we think about the world. Uh-huh. So just what is the climate like right now for independent web series like The Guild? And is that something that you would recommend that people get into? You know, it's very interesting because The Guild saw many ebbs and flows in the uh, web series business environment. Uh, there were a lot of sort of media companies trying to get into the business and then they went, went under and then they got into the business. They went under. Dr. Horrible also gave a big boost to web series uh, in around 2008. And then that come to fruition in the way that the business part uh, realized. So it's very interesting because now it feels like finally the web is, it's going to stick. The growth of web series and digital content and, and watching video online is going to be long lasting. And uh, the peculiar part of it is that independent web content has actually taken a step back in order to uh, facilitate the people watching regular TV shows online and, and all this other stuff uh, as far as budgets go. So the Guild was never very high budget, but uh, it seems like nowadays because there's such a glut of entertainment and gl a glut of uh, inventory and video vying for people's attention that the audience is now diluted and therefore people are willing to uh, risk less money to invest in web series. I think it's just a temporary thing and I think it's definitely going to go upward as people start being able to watch Game of Thrones on the same browser that they're watching something on YouTube. But right now, you know, I don't know if the, something like the Guild could have launched and been able to get the show's voice through all the other 
things that are vying for people's attention. So what I would give people advice about is, you know, just don't wait, make what you want, make, you know, something that really translates your voice into video and do it uh, because you're never going to do it perfectly the first time. You might as well start practicing now. And uh, finding an audience is going to be very difficult. And just making sure that you're saying something that's really true to yourself and expressing yourself uniquely, uh, that's really all you can ask yourself to do. You can't create something thinking, oh, I heard baking is really popular this mm-hmm. month. You have to genuinely be a baker and do something that's unique with baking that the audience hasn't seen before. That goes for scripted or non-scripted uh, or just a vlog, really. Uh, we've been doing a really cool thing on my network, Geek It Sundry. We're doing a vlogging project and we've been adding a lot of new talent to it. And it's amazing. We've gotten so many submissions over the summer to join the vlogging channel. And every single person, you can really tell the minute you watch a video, whether they're talking about something they love or they're talking about something because, you know, somebody told them to. And uh, people just really, they their personality shines when you're talking about something you have passion for. So I would say first and foremost, make sure that passion is there because it's a lot of work and you have to make sure that you don't consider it work because you care about so, it so much. And that will get you through all the tough times, just like it got us through all the tough times in the guild. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, do you just want to say a bit more about Geek and Sundry uh, for people who don't know? Just what is it and why should they go check it out? Yeah, so Geek and Sundry is the company that I started in 2011. It was uh, the last season of the guild is on the channel. It's on YouTube. So YouTube invested in a, a, a hundred channels to uh, make all sorts of web series of all different backgrounds. And they, I was very lucky to be picked and we were very even, even luckier to get um, reinvested in for a second year. So uh, for about a year, almost well, a year and about several months, uh, we've been releasing really cool content. Um, all the shows, about a dozen of them have centered around uh, things that you'd see at Comic-Con or a, a fan convention or just feature geeky things, uh, and geeky subjects. Uh, we have, scripted shows like The Guild Season 6 and Space Janitors and uh, written by a kid, which is a storytelling uh, show where a kid tells a story in a, in a sci-fi or fantasy universe and we reenact it either with a different uh, uh, director each time. We have a, a full-length 30-minute show with Will Wheaton who created a show called Tabletop. It's where uh, he invites three celebrities to come join him to play a different uh, board game every week or a hobby game. It's really amazing. It, it definitely has drawn a lot of people to the hobby that never were, would have thought of playing board games before. And, you know, so on and so on. And like I said, we have a vlogger network where we have uh, 20 vloggers that talk about everything from cosplay to thumb wrestling to uh, comics. So really, Geek and Sundry is my translation of the guild community transferred over to something that will be evergreen. It will be beyond just one show, but it's a network and, and a website destination and a forum and a community that people can belong to that. And they know the sensibility will be my sensibility and the shows, hopefully they'll really enjoy them and be a part of what we consider a family really. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, on your blog, also you had a, a video called state of the sundry where you're just kind of talking about what is sort of a state of the union for geek and sundry. And in that video, you talk about how you, you would like to see geeks more as rebels and fighters. And so, like, in what way do you see geeks as rebels and what sort of things should we be fighting for? Yeah, I actually did that video. I was going to do a, a kind of silly music video instead to launch the second season. And I didn't feel like it was very true. 
And I actually had gone through a lot of, uh, you know, ups and downs after the guild ended. Uh, it was kind of an emotionally tough time for me. And I didn't want to do something frivolous. And I, you know, being involved in business and creating a, a startup company has been very challenging because I was a creator. I'm a creative person. I wrote and I produced and I acted in a show. I did all the sort of front face activity, like the marketing and tweeting and all this stuff. But really, it wasn't so much the business stuff I was drawn to. And in creating this company, we've gotten over a huge hump. But the first year was extremely challenging to set up how this company would work, managing personnel. And at the time I needed to do a video, I didn't want to do something silly or fun. I mean, necessarily, I wanted to say something about geek culture because interacting with sponsors and the business side made me feel very superficial in the way that I was dealing with geek culture. And I didn't want to get caught in the trap of being cliched or just dealing with things and subjects geeks like versus the substance of what it means to be a geek, which is essentially someone who's brave enough to love something against judgment. The heart of being a geek is a little bit of rejection, but uh, love in the face of rejection. Uh, in that Geek and uh, State of the Sundry video, you also talked about how the term geek is sort of becoming something to monetize and market to and exploit. Could you just talk about some of the ways in which you see that happening? Well, like I said, I, dealing with the business side of a quote-unquote geek business uh, certainly led me to interact with people uh, on, on a much more surface way. Uh, uh, and, and by necessity, when you're building a business, you really need to hone in on what you mean. And when you see the word geek, and everybody thinks the cliche of the word geek, which is a person who likes comics and books and games. And, and like I said, commercialization of geek is very popular now, obviously, because if you look at the biggest movies that we enjoy and the biggest TV shows, they're all fantasy and sci-fi right now. So obviously, anybody who is looking to make money is going to look to that as something to tap. And I wanted to make sure in the speech that I did, uh, the vlog that I did, to remind people that to have this last longer than just a fad, to get people to uh, really understand Geekdom, we have to mean something ourselves and not get trapped into, hey, everything's just a mashup t-shirt. Because it, it means more than that underneath. And if some kid who might not, not have been a geek otherwise gets attracted to geek things because of uh, the sort of popular culture being... Um, encouraging that we want to offer something underneath just the superficial of that to make sure that person in 10 years doesn't abandon playing video games or abandon the idea of playing a board game with their friends or reject uh geeky things at all because uh the the societal tide has shifted to something else being popular and and to me uh being a geek is very organic I, i've always been an outsider but i've never been ashamed of being who i am and uh I think that that has served me in good stead because at no point was I ever, uh, am I ever threatened by people who question who I am or why I like the things I do or my legitimacy because I know who I am very strongly. And that's what I think geek culture can reinforce as we struggle with this whole popularity uh, situation. Well, yeah. And, and as geekiness becomes more popular and acquires uh, a cachet and a sort of marketing angle. Uh, it has led to these sorts of wrangling over authenticity and who's a real geek and who's a fake geek girl yeah. and a fake gamer girl and stuff. Yeah, uh, but I don't understand. I mean, people should not be concerned 
it's kind of like gay marriage to me. It's like, is it really harming you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think that it's kind of a horrible argument when you're pinpointing people and asking them to prove themselves. It's really, shouldn't you be worried about something else? I don't ever approach anyone um, saying, you, should, you have to prove yourself to me. You have to prove the negative here. I mean, that's not even, that's not even a valid argument. Uh, prove that you aren't fake. Well, that's <laughs> it, in 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 rhetoric and and, and in mathematics, you know, proving a negative is kind of impossible. So I uh, I, I like to encourage people to just be who they are, regardless of uh, having to prove anything to anyone else. And if you're one of those people, if that person is 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 judging you and and questioning who you are, I, I don't know if there's any point at which you're going to intersect anyway. It's not as if you're going to be able to show enough. Uh, street cred in order to say, oh, yeah, we're going to be friends. Well, you don't want to be friends with that person anyway. So, All right, cool. So I did want to talk about in Geek and Sundry, you had three channels that were devoted primarily to books and writing, uh, Sword and Laser, Storyboard, and Vaginal Fantasy. Uh, you want to just tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. we uh, The first season, we did have three shows. Now, we only have Vaginal Fantasy, which is my uh, romance genre book club, Sword and Laser, um, is still an amazing podcast uh, with Veronica and Tom. And S- Storyboard is on hiatus because Pat Rothfuss, the host, is very busy working on his other projects. But books and literature are something that are very important to me. And I felt were rep- underrepresented in video form. I-, I don't know if book readers are necessarily the biggest video watchers. I think uh, the numbers kind of prove that it isn't as strong as video games or comics or anything like that, like that as far as uh, people who read books watching videos. But uh, I think podcasts are actually much more um, popular as far as uh, book readers uh, translating. But at the same time, it's very interesting to me that uh, you know a bestseller. If you sell thirty thousand books, you're you know you're on the bestseller list, really, and that much audience certainly is going to watch a video. So I think there is the potential even in the future to provide that for book readers as a social uh, experience. And that was really what we were trying to encourage. Um, uh, Sword and Laser and Vaginal Fantasy both have very, very active forums on Goodreads, which is a really great service if you're a reader. And uh, that sort of socialization around books, I think, encourages uh, people to kind of uh, step out from being an isolated reader and connect the dots in ways uh, that they wouldn't have in the things that they read. And that's why I think book clubs are, are, are great and uh, and why I wanted to include them on Geek at Sundry in the first place. And uh, as we move forward, I certainly will look for more opportunities to represent literature on the channel. Well, yeah, in Vaginal Fantasy, we should say it's sort of for romance, um, science fiction fantasy crossover type novels. Yeah, we we do some historical occasionally. We're doing a Tipping the Velvet this month and uh, uh, Swords Point uh, to celebrate uh, gay and lesbian uh, Doma dropping. But we're going to do sp- uh, Space Assassins next month. So it's very much, you know, very tongue-in-cheek, kind of mixed bag, but like popcorn. Basically, it's a pop. It's kind of popcorn. <laughs> mm-hmm. Could you talk about the process of selecting the name Vaginal Fantasy for the show and what sort of reactions you've gotten to that name? Uh, yeah, well, uh, my mother thought it was porn, so, <laughs> but, uh, I actually discovered romance novels when I got a Kindle. I'd never been brave enough to buy them in the store with a cover before, and I, uh, 
got a Kindle and I was like, oh, I'm going to try those books. I was always ashamed of reading. And then it just got to be an obsession with me because it's my reality TV. I like to read them before I go to bed at night. It's It definitely turns my brain off. I I was into Goodreads several years ago and I wanted to shelve the books and I felt kind of embarrassed just shelving a romance. So I did them tongue in cheek, uh, vaginal fantasy, and I made the phrase up and I thought it was, you know, it made me laugh and it, it shocked people, but it also made them laugh too. And I love making people laugh. So I got the URL years ago and didn't think anything more of it. I was just shelving books that I read and people tended to find them because of my Goodreads account and, and had a lot of fun. And then Google approached me with this new Hangout on Air thing a couple, uh, I, I think about a year and a half ago. And they said, would you like to use this service? And I said, well, I can't possibly add something more to my plate that I wasn't already doing already. What do I do that I don't do a video about that could be fun and no work for me? Oh, these romance books. So I approached three of my friends, Veronica Belmont, who does Sword and Laser, uh, who approaches everything from a very intellectual point of view, and Bonnie Burton, who is kind of a a wild card. She's really awesome personality uh, online, and she does crafts and and is is just hilarious. She comes from a more feminist uh, sort of point of view. And then my friend Kyla, uh, Casey, who is very also very funny on Twitter and just a, a really good friend of mine, and we used to trade these books back and forth um, before we started the hangout. So I reached out to my three friends and I said, "Hey, do you want to do a monthly book club where we drink and discuss a, a book every month and have a forum and just make it really informal?" And they were they were in, and now a year and a half later, we're having a great time uh, doing it. And you know, we have a lot of men in the in the club as well. And we, we don't just stay uh, talking about the book. The book definitely spurs sort of off-topic conversations about uh, f- feminism or uh, women in, in media or movies or books or games. I mean, we talk about pretty much everything because we are drinking wine the whole time. <laughs> and we tend to get a little bit more unfocused. But it's certainly the most social you can get around a book club. And we have uh, almost 10,000 members and we have women meeting up every month, discussing the books on their own and getting together to play games. And it's just really gratifying to create the small sort of intimate group that really just enjoys each other's company around something. And, and we're rallying around something that you wouldn't normally uh, rally around. Well, you mentioned uh, Swords Point, which is by Ellen Kushner, right? Uh, it is. Yeah. yeah. I saw that you um, you actually teamed up with Neil Gaiman to narrate uh, one of her other novels, The Privilege of the Sword. You want to just say what that process was like? It's actually the sequel to uh, Swords Point. So I had read the books already because I'm, I'm a big fan of hers. And uh, and they approached me to do a small part in, in the audiobook uh, for the sequel. So uh, yeah, no, it's it was an interesting process. I'd never done audiobooks before. And I'm I'm definitely more of a visual reader, a visual learner. So audiobooks isn't something that I'm particularly familiar with, but that experience, just being a part of that, and uh, was was just super fun, and and made me want to do it again. Actually. Uh, okay, so one thing I really wanted to ask you about is you say in the Guild book that you're a big fan of the Ultima computer game, role playing game series, which is one of my favorite series, oh, of, series of all time. Absolutely, thank you. High five. <laughs> um, and obviously, Codex, uh, your character in the guild, is, must be a reference to the Codex of Ultimate Wisdom. Uh, of course. Thank you for being identifying that. That's very <laughs> obscure, but definitely, yeah. I was a member of the Ultimate Dragons, which is an uh, was on Prodigy actually, and and very early online in like '95 or something. I was so young, and I uh, I joined that service because I loved the game so much as a teenager and and like a twelve year old, and I would post poetry. To the game, fan fan poetry on the on the forums and on the 
bulletin board. And it was, it was very, it was part of a formative part of my life, actually, uh, to, to be able to reach out and meet people, uh, in this online world that, uh, loved what I loved. Mm-hmm. So what was your dragon name? Um, Codex Dragon. Okay. I was genetically altered dragon. Oh, how funny. <laughs> I remember Crimson Dragon and Black Dragon and, uh, there were many others that I, I interacted with, but I don't know if I, I saw yours. I didn't post a whole lot, but I've always been more of a lurker type uh, personality yeah. online. But um, but no, those games were a huge influence on me. I actually majored in college in uh, political philosophy with an emphasis on moral philosophy. And I, I really traced that back to the my interest in you know the eight virtues of Britannia. No, it's very formative. As a kid, you uh, experience your personality being set by those that fortune teller. And for some reason, that just really struck a chord with me that you could kind of follow these virtues. I still feel like I have way too much honor to be in business. That's what I always say sometimes. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So uh, what's uh, just sort of what's new with you? I heard, did you have some announcements at, at this most recent Comic-Con you want to talk about? Um, yes, absolutely. We, uh, we announced several new shows for Geek It's Hendry. We have a, a new show called Outlands. That's an eight-bit animated show that's going to be premiering in a couple of weeks on Geek It's Hendry by Adam Delapedia, who created Code Monkeys. It's super funny. I'll be doing a voice on that as well. And it's about a group of misfits traveling space, terraforming planets to uh, support more consumerism. But really, it's just about the misfit personalities on the ship. Uh, we also announced uh, two other scripted shows, called uh, one called Gamer ER with um, the sketch group Lost Nomads. And uh, that's Josh Gad from Book of Mormon's uh, sketch group. So we'll be doing a project together um, early next year. Uh, we have uh, another superhero scripted show that mixed with motion comics uh, called Caper. It was created by Amy Berg, um, who I worked with on Eureka, who's one of my favorite writers. Uh, so I'm super excited about that. And then lastly, we uh, announced a scripted show called Spooked with Brian Singer's company, Bad Hat Harry. Uh, it's a half hour, actually, paranormal comedy about a, a, a group of paranormal investigators. Um, and that will all be on YouTube and our uh, our website, geekishedry.com, uh, this fall and early next year. So we definitely are, re, you know, we have amazing shows that are non-scripted like Tabletop and all the bloggers. And now we're looking to refocus around what the Guild provided, which is really, lo- uh, you know, small budget, but really character-driven comedy uh, for the web. And I'm super excited because that's the stuff I love to work with most. Mm-hmm. Actually, speaking of tabletop, uh, it was mentioned in the book, and it was just reported on Gawker, I think, yesterday, that the set for tabletop had previously been used for porn shoots. And yep. uh, I was just wondering what uh, what sorts of reactions people have been <laughs> uh, have have said to that to that you revelation. Know, strangely enough, we had already known about that. Uh, I think it was on Reddit a couple months before as well. But uh, you know, all we could say is that I think any location in Los Angeles, you could find. Uh, you could find porn being shot there. It's just Los Angeles. This is where it's all shot. There's not one location, I'm, I'm sure, that's inviolate like that. So, Will <laughs> uh, likes to say we always flip the covers. And, <laughs> and that's all I could say about it. I'm just shocked that there's tabletop porn crossover. That's all I'm, all I'm shocked about. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. And how about uh, as an actor? Do you have any acting roles uh, recently that people should check out or coming up or anything? Well, you can always find me on the channel doing my uh, retro gaming show co-opted to with my brother. We have some really funny episodes. Uh, I I just announced I'll be back on Supernatural, so I'll be going to Vancouver later this month, uh, later in August. Uh, I'm looking to be- develop new shows, so really my I'm actually 
cutting back on everything to really dig in and try to create new worlds, just like the guild. So we'll see how long that takes. Well, we're really looking forward to seeing what you come up with. And I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Felicia Day. The book, The Guild, The Official Companion is out now. And you should all go check out geekandsundry.com. So Felicia, thanks for joining us. Fly, it was fun. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Felicia Day for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, our panel topic today will be YouTube for Geeks. And we're joined by not one, but two guest geeks. So first up, we've got Matt London making his eighth appearance on the show. He's the creator of Space Pirates in Space, an animated web series that premiered on YouTube in 2012. His fiction has appeared in The Living Dead 2, Daily Science Fiction, and is forthcoming in Space and Time magazine. He's also written extensively about video games and other geeky stuff for Lightspeed Magazine, Realms of Fantasy, and Tor.com. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, guys. And joining us for the very first time is Kate Matthews. She's a graduate of the Alpha Young Writers Workshop and a recent college grad who's been vlogging on YouTube since 2010, where she's racked up over 3,000 subscribers. So Kate, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. All right, and so I think just to start out with, we're going to talk about what our personal experiences have been uploading stuff to YouTube. And so I think I'd like Matt to go first and just tell us about Space Pirates in Space, just uh, describe it a little bit and say what's the current status of that. Sure, so Space Pirates in Space is an animated web comic about a crew of incompetent space pirates robbing the galaxy one screw-up at a time. It's, uh, I call it an animated web comic because each episode is only about 30 to 90 seconds long. It's not like your normal web series that's like three to five minute episodes, um, or longer. So I really kind of like the idea of this bite-sized video content. It allows you to consume them really, really quickly. And it's sort of structured more like a lot of the web comics that I love. We just, well, we're about to wrap up our first season, and uh, and then the second season will premiere uh, sometime in the fall. It's uh, It's been an awesome project to work on. You know, I the, the inspiration for it was that I always wanted to be the showrunner of an animated TV series, um, but, you know, the opportunities for that are kind of few and far between. So I really wanted to emulate that style of production in making a web series. So I brought together a team of sort of actor, improver, writer types and got them all into a room to really brainstorm ideas and collaboratively craft a script for the, for the series. And then after that, we, you know, recorded dialogue for everybody. And then I animated the entire uh, season. And so, I mean, you can do an animated series just as basically a one person production team and like what kind of equipment and software do you use? Yeah, it's a, it's not an easy task to do it all by myself, but I have a background in film and television production. So I sort of came with a lot of those skills when I started. You know, it's mainly editing dialogue, something I'm sure you're very <laughs> familiar with, Dave. And, um, and then I animate, well, I, so I build character assets inside of Photoshop, then export those to After Effects where I sort of animate the characters kind of like puppets. And so After Effects is a really great tool for creating three-dimensional animation. Then I sort of finish it all off in, in Final Cut Pro. Mm -hmm. 
And so do you watch a lot of web animated web stuff on YouTube? Yeah, I try to. Um, it's, it's funny, you know, there are obviously very, there are varying degrees of quality, but, um, you know, what sort of got me hooked into it was, uh, Machinima, which is this style of animation where you perform the film, the animated film inside of a video game, uh, and then dub over the, the motion of the game with your own dialogue. Um, I think the first real breakout, uh, one of these shows, was Red versus Blue from Rooster Teeth, which has now, I mean, Rooster Teeth has become this titan in, in the web animation industry. Um, they do all sorts of comedic content and game content. Uh, but then beyond that, you know, Machinima does all sorts of shows. A couple of my favorites are um, Mega Man Dies at the End and Sonic for Hire, which sort of take classic video game characters and put them into really absurd situations. And we, we should we should mention that Red versus Blue is set in the Halo verse and uh, you know the Halo video game and it's basically Red versus Blue means you know the if you're playing a versus game like one team is red and one is blue and and then they just you know have humorous stuff happening as the you know they sort of make fun of the different the silly little conventions of the game and uh, it it's actually is quite hilarious so yeah yeah it's a, it's a really funny uh, it's a really funny show I'm I'm always impressed you know the production value of web content you know, can vary a lot just because some people don't have the resources to make something look really slick and, you know, sort of first tier professional. But the truth is that it doesn't take a budget to write something really smart or really funny. And so what you end up with is just really brilliant writing. That's the thing I think that, that makes good, uh, web entertainment content. Uh, what, just when you mention video game characters in absurd situations, it makes me think of the Dorkly videos. I don't know if you've seen any of those, but they're like video game characters. And so like one of them is Link rescues Zelda from Ganon in Legend of Zelda. Oh. And then her like boorish boyfriend shows up and, <laughs> and goes off with her. And that one's really funny. And then um, there's this really funny one where the main character from Braid is at a bar. And there's all these other side scroll characters like Mario and... Uh, and stuff, and and the uh, main character from Braid is just really pretentious, and he's like, "I'm not hanging out with you guys. I'm in a completely different <laughs> class." And and Mario's like, "Well, we're both we're both characters, you know." And it's like, and Braid's like, "No, but I rewind time." And Mario's like, "You mean like Banjo Kazooie?" And the guy's like, "No, no, not like Banjo Kazooie. That's outrageous." And uh, that's a really funny video. Yeah, no, that's exactly the kind of thing. I mean, like, so Mega Man dies at the end is a spoof on the Mega Man series. That sort of it sort of turns Mega Man into an '80s action movie. Where he's like grizzled with a beard out in the woods, cutting lumber, and some robot comes out to like bring him back for one last mission, and he doesn't want to go, and he's all conflicted, and then you know hilarity ensues as they, as he sort of navigates the seedy robot underworld. Mm -hmm. See, Kate, do you uh, watch any animated movies on YouTube? Um, I've seen a few, um, just one-offs, but I I can't say that I make a habit of it. <laughs> I think some of the best ones I've seen were um, actually involving Batman and Superman, um, just parody videos. Did you see the um, the video that they did of the death of Superman? Yeah, yeah, I did. I think who was in it? It was somebody. There was somebody famous in it, and um, but it was like I forget. I think it might have been through College Humor, but they or um, Funny or Die. But they did basically a retelling of the Death of Superman comics. Like, so if you've never seen the Death of Superman, I'm going to explain to you in 10 minutes the Death of Superman, the whole saga. Mm -hmm. 
But then they acted it out basically on the streets of Los Angeles. And it's just completely absurd and ridiculous. <laughs> I didn't realize you were quoting that. I thought you were just about to spend 10 minutes describing <laughs> Superman. I was getting a little nervous there. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, actually, actually, you know, one of one of my favorite uh, things on YouTube, uh, which I was going to mention later, but since we're talking about video games, um, uh, one of one of my favorite things is this uh, Breaking Bad 16-bit RPG. Uh, it's like basically like playing Final Fantasy from the 16-bit days, but with Breaking Bad characters. And it's just like <laughs> it has all the, the ridiculous like things that happen in the show. That like when you strip away all of the character stuff that's so great on the show, and you look at it just on the the surface, it's just like it seems r- ridiculous. It's like it starts off with uh, with Walt going to the doctor and, and finding out that he has cancer, and then it like pops up with like a, a choice tree and like you have to decide what to do and it's like you know ask for help uh you know do this do this and then like the last one was sell meth and it's like <laughs> so of course he just goes and sell meth you know it's like ignoring the three other reasonable <laughs> options that were above it um and there's all, all kinds of stuff like that and then like it has this really great coda at the end where it's like you know uh breaking bad 2 uh the adventures of walt jr which is walt's son and it's like um it's basically just like his only option is like eat breakfast because it's like on the show <laughs> it's on the show he's basically just eating breakfast and then and that's what he does <laughs> and then it's like okay go away walt jr go to school i mean i posted like my top 10 videos and a bunch of these are animated i don't know if anyone got a chance to watch any of them mm-hmm. love them love them i really um i was a, i mean uh, Zay Frank's true facts, I think, is maybe the most genius thing I've ever seen on mm-hmm. YouTube. But I mean, you can sort of you can guess why I like it so much. It's talking about the perverse sex habits of weird <laughs> alien-looking animals. <laughs> well, those aren't it's animated, like, though. No, they're not. But that's even more horrifying. <laughs> um, you know, you look at like the sex lives of seahorses or land snails, and um, you can be horrified. <laughs> well, did you see? Uh, I think this is animated. It's like scientifically accurate Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and stuff like that. <laughs> no, where, I didn't see that one. Oh, yeah. So they're like, you know, they, they have actual horrifying facts of turtle biology and stuff and, you know, make it so that the Teenage Mutant Ninja, Mutant Ninja Turtles have those characteristics. And it is, it's just like, it's so terrifying. Like, you can't even begin to imagine. And they do it for a bunch of different animal mm-hmm. mutant kind of shows like that. Mm hmm. Um, two other things I had on my list of favorites that were animated. Um, uh, do you guys know the comedian Tim Minchin? He's like a yeah. he's like a he's like a comedian singer, and so he has this song called Storm, and somebody made an animated movie out of it, and it's just it's like it's sort of like poetry more so than than actual song because it's just like he's just sort of like reciting this uh, story, uh, but it's like kind of like a song. But anyway, um. It's uh, it's the the animated film version is actually really cool to watch, and I mean it's and he's he's like a great like he's a great geek oriented comedian. He's like he's very um like sort of rational, like his humor is very rational based. He he makes a, he has a lot of uh you know sort of atheist type uh, humor and uh, that kind of thing. And so that and that and this one is specifically about uh, uh being a, a skeptic and running into someone at a party who's who's just like a believer. Oh like, yeah, no, stuff. that's great. Yeah. Um, actually, one of the things on mine is non-stamp collector um, mm-hmm. on YouTube. Uh, you know, people um, uh, people sometimes say that atheism is just another religion, and one retort to that is, yeah, atheism is a religion, like not collecting stamps is a hobby, <laughs> and so that's where the non-stamp collector uh, handle comes from. But so he has a video called Noah's Ark, and I don't know if anyone watched it, but it's oh, it's so funny. But it, <laughs> it just goes through like what you would actually have to all the practical problems you would have trying to get every animal on earth onto a big wooden boat and like 9,000 species of spiders and, you know, yeah. 
how do you feed them and how do, how, how do you get the polar bears together with the, <laughs> you know, the camels and stuff? It's, it's really, really funny. You know, one thing, one of the things that you linked to, Dave, that I really liked, um, I really liked the They're Made of Meat mm-hmm. short film, the based on the Terry Bisson story. I really love how short video content, whether live action or animated, is a great way to share some of the awesome short stories um, in the sort of sci-fi world, you know? It's it's funny because, like, occasionally they'll try to turn a short story into a feature film. Obviously, a lot of Philip K. Dick stories have gone this way. There was that horrendous movie, The Box, right? Or The Button? Mm -hmm. What was that? Based? Yeah. And whenever you try to expand a short story into a feature film, it always ends up being, like, a bloated disaster. But... When it when it's a uh, short film or an animated short, I think it can really deliver the essence of a story really well. Um, a t- animation teacher of mine named Nick Fox Geeg uh, won the best animated short at South by Southwest a couple of years ago with a uh, Benjamin Rosenbaum story called hmm. The Orange. Oh, okay. um, that's an awesome film that just like perfectly conveys the the story. You mm-hmm. know, it's just the text of the story recited with animation and it just looks great it feels great it's just got this it's just this awesome story yeah yeah and they're made out of meat is the number one thing on my list and the premise is that it's a conversation between two aliens and it turns out that most alien uh life in the universe is not organic and so they're just horrified to discover that there's that, that uh humans are organic and have brains with blood and and so they're like they're made out of meat this is so freaky and unwrong uh and it's yeah and it's really funny it's the kind of thing you couldn't do it you know, it couldn't be longer than four or five minutes, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. it's just perfect at that length. Right. Because then you would need like, you know, one of the aliens would have a girlfriend and a boss, and a boss <laughs> who's mean to him. And like, it would turn into this, like, yeah. yeah, this bloated thing. Let's see, Kate, do you have any, uh, since Matt has brought up non-animated videos, do you have any <laughs> non-animated videos you want to mention? Oh, goodness. There are so many. Um, I guess uh, when when you suggested that I, I look up some of my geekier videos that I've enjoyed over the time. The first video that I thought of was MC Frontalot's spoiler alert. I'm sure some of you have seen that. Um, but it's it's basically a nerdcore rap about, uh, well, just spoiling every single thing in every single movie. <laughs> um, and it's really funny to watch and actually really horrifying too because you know you're spoiling things for yourself. <laughs> well, I will never watch it probably then. <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, speaking of music videos, I mean, one I had on my list is the, uh, like, uh, obscenity warning, or not safe for work warning, is the Fuck Me Ray Bradbury music video <laughs> by Rachel Bloom. Yeah. Uh, in which it's a, she's like a schoolgirl, and she sings about how she wants to fuck Ray Bradbury. And this was like, man, when this came out, it was all over, like, every mm-hmm. single one of my friends linked to this. Uh, Saladin Ahmed said, you know, this is like, it's like catnip for the internet, because it's like boob, <laughs> boobs plus science fiction books or something you know yeah yeah uh yeah that and that actually ended up getting nominated for the hugo award for best dramatic presentation um and then she actually went to the world to Worldcon that year and uh she was i think she was at the signing like you know they do like sign autographing uh sessions and and like there'll be like four people in a row and they have like lines for people for everybody to come get their autographs and she was actually at the session right before mine um so i mean i, I didn't get to actually talk to her but i mean we sort of nodded at each other as we were passing by but wait does she know you no, no. It's just, so, you know. So you just nodded at her, basically. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, who is that guy? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny because uh, Sam Weller, who wrote the biography of Ray Bradbury, he actually showed that video to Ray Bradbury. So there's like a video where you can see Ray <laughs> Bradbury's reaction to watching it. Yeah. Uh, but I was going to say when uh, when Matt was talking about they're made out of need and, and you know, adapting stories to little short videos, um, you know, uh, when my anthology, uh, The Mad Scientist Guide to World Domination came out, um, I think we talked about this on the show before, but uh, David Levine, uh, he has a story in the book called Letter to the Editor, and he turned it into a short film because uh, it's basically a mad scientist uh laying out his plans or for for why what he's been doing over the course of his mad scientist career uh has actually been for the benefit of the planet right and so uh he's like making this case and he's just explaining it all but it's like just told first person like you know he's talking to you the reader and uh so he did a little short film of him dressed up as the mad scientist and he's just like talking right to the camera um and uh and he and he just does a really great job performing it like i've heard him read it live at conventions and uh and it just it was like it was just uh even more wonderful than than having just read it myself and um you know it's very simple and, and they did they did a little bit of editing and uh and whatnot but i mean it's mostly just like a, like one shot on him doing it you know uh speaking of adapting short stories because i actually tried that um you know when i was first the first couple of videos i posted on youtube i just took the audio you know some of my stories had appeared as podcasts and so i just took the audio of the first scene of the story and kind of did little you know every five seconds or something a new image would come up to accompany the the audio and those actually i mean they, they got a couple thousand views i mean nothing huge but it was so labor intensive i, I gave up after the first scene basically but mm. uh you know i think it worked pretty well if, if i had like a team <laughs> to help me if i had matt to do it for me i think it'd be a good <laughs> idea yeah uh, but yeah, you know, uh, you know, I know you wanted to talk about book trailers and, you know, what I was just saying about um, the Mad Scientist Guide uh, video that David Levine did, like to me, that actually, I think like for an anthology, that's like the perfect sort of book trailer. Um, like I actually do have a couple of book trailers for, like I have one for The Living Dead and one for Seeds of Change. Um, and there was a very primitive one for Wastelands that we had on YouTube at some point, but I took it down because it was like, you know, it's it, it just wasn't up to par. Um, but, the, but David Levine's video is like, okay, like that's content that you would watch independently of having any interest in the book. But most book trailers, it feels to me like you, you kind of have to already be kind of interested in it already to actually watch it. Like, um... You know, I think, I mean, some of them are good. Like, I, the one for Scott Sigler's Nocturnal is pretty good. Like, I, I, I happened to see it because I was watching Sword and Laser and they uh, and their video show. They they just aired the trailer on there. But, um, you know, most book trailers that I've seen uh, don't seem very good at capturing the audience because it's like a it's it's like a trailer for a movie, but then the experience of reading the book is not going to be anything like watching the trailer for the movie or for the book. Well, yeah. And I mean, most I agree that most book trailers are just so underwhelming, I think, especially because we're used to movie trailers where they spend hundreds of millions of dollars making a movie and then they take all the best shots from it and put it together into two or three minutes. And you're just like, wow, that's amazing. And then, of course, the movie usually tends turns out to be terrible. But <laughs> but then a, a book trailer is just like they get like some random person and they have a, some cheap costume and then it's shot on kind of crummy camera and stuff. And it doesn't make you want to read the book at all. Um, the only ones that I've ever thought were good. Where the, they did one for Stephen King's Duma Key uh, mm. that was super produced. And that one was pretty good. Mm. And actually, there was one for Carrie Ryan's book, The Forest of Hands and Teeth, that actually made me want to read that book. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, I agree, it's totally problematic trying to do book trailers. I mean, I think the problem with these is that 
they're just being posted on YouTube and online elsewhere, and you have to go want to watch them. Like, if they were airing, like, at the beginning of a movie reel, like, while you're just sitting in the audience waiting for the actual trailers to start, the movie trailers, like, if they were airing them then, they might actually play well, because it's like they're introducing the audience to this thing that maybe they haven't heard of, but, you know, there is that visual component, so, like, you you know, you watch it to check out what it is, and, and, and then maybe you'll get interested in it. I mean, it's, like I said, it still has the same problems of not really feeling like the experience of reading the book, but at least it, it, it might actually uh, reach a new audience, whereas you're sort of self-selecting who's actually going to ever click on these things um, the way it is now. Well, like when we interviewed Rick Yancey, he was saying as part of that $750,000 marketing campaign that they actually are showing trailers for um, the fifth wave in movies, theaters before movies. So it'd be, it would be interesting if there was some way to know whether that actually was effective. Yeah, that's actually very exciting. John, I think you're touching on something that I've noticed a lot in sort of the, you know, online space, which is that, you know, there's so many fans out there, right? And everyone has really specific interests. And I think that the barrier to entry for a lot of people to finding new exciting stuff that they would really be into is just knowing that it exists you know it so much about searching the internet is needle in a haystack stuff i think it's sort of the result of search engine optimization right where you go looking for something you know like sci-fi comedy right and the first hundred thousand results for that will be the same 50 things that are the 50 biggest things in the world (laughs) but Beyond that, there's so much other content that's just harder to find. I wish that there was a way for people to be introduced to new and exciting kind of stuff without requiring, you know, a trailer to be at the front of a movie, which obviously Mm -hmm. would be really expensive, or like, you know, a two-page spread in Entertainment Weekly, or, you know, a banner ad on the front page of YouTube. Well, there's a there's a concept, you know, in um, new media that good content rises to the top. And that's becoming a little bit less true now that there's a lot of big money getting involved and um, a lot of sponsorship and a lot of advertising. And, and that's all complicated. But good content does rise to the top. And, you know, it's not just Justin Bieber that goes viral, luckily. So it, you find someone and then they like it and they share your video and then they mention it to a friend. And that's just how it works. See, Kate, have you ever uh, bought a book or even been tempted to buy a book after seeing any sort of video about it? To be honest, I haven't. I've seen very good book trailers, though, and I think the best book trailers are when it's it, it acknowledges that it's fundamentally a literary um, activity and it kind of embraces what makes books strong, which is the voice and, and the voice moving the plot forward. Uh, so, you know, I, I mentioned I have two book trailers, actual book trailers. So there's one for The Living Dead, which uh, was actually done by a professional studio that was looking to get into doing book trailers, and they just approached me because I think at the time Living Dead was being was very popular and it just came out and it was and and they wanted to do something with zombies, I guess, and so they they offered to just do it for free. So yeah, sure, okay, and yeah, I think I, I thought it turned out okay. I mean, it's pretty cool to watch. It it has a uh, it has good original music to it and it has some nice visuals and and stuff. But the the trailer I have for Seeds of Change, like to me, like that actually feels like the best kind of trailer that you could have for for like a anthology like that. I mean, a, a short of actually adapting a story into a full short film, like with David Levine. It's like the Seeds of Change trailer. My my friend Jack Kincaid did it for me. He found like a bunch of like public domain images and, and video and stuff, and he cut together this thing 
that like did a little excerpt of each story. So he like he and he, he he's like a voice actor. So he did a lot of the voices and stuff. And so he just like narrated a little segment of each story. And he did all this original music for it. And it's like I mean it's really an impressive production. And it's like I still get like chills watching it. I mean maybe it's like you know because it's my book. But I mean it's like it just really feels like that's a really good job of introducing the book quickly to an audience. I just want to say about the Living Dead trailer. So he used, you know, it's for a zombie anthology, right? And so he used sort of stock footage of just kids hanging out and then, then did some sort of digital process, processing on it to make them look sort of zombified. And there's this shot where this girl sort of turns her head to look at the camera. And I was like, no, when she turns her head, the far side of her head that she turns to reveal should all be like messed up and bloody and stuff. And, and so they went back and did that. So I just want to say that was my idea. If anyone watches that video. <laughs> I, I did a book trailer for uh, Amanda Cohen's Dirt Candy Cookbook. Um, it's this comic book cookbook, which I think really translated well to video because you can actually see the art from the interior of the book. I think that's it makes it much easier to do a video presentation for something textual if it's if it has really great art or illustrations. So comics work better in a lot of ways. Uh, let's see, Kate, why don't you tell us a bit about your vlogging? How did you get into that? I, my friend referred me actually to the Vlogbrothers channel because I was going to college um, with someone who was closely associated with them. And that's why I found out that there was this entire world on YouTube of people talking to each other with cameras. And then I kind of, I just started putting videos online as many, many teenagers now do. Um, and it kind of just blossomed from there. Some of my videos were more well received than others, and they got some uh, modicum of attention within the community. And so, how did you like? What kind of equipment and/or software did you use? Um, I started out just, uh, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this, just with um, my eyesight on my Mac. I just would sit in front of it and talk for a bit, um, and then edit that together um, with iMovie. Even though I already had a video camera, but it was just easier. Um, and then I eventually got a better quality camera, um, not as good as a DSLR, but just a pretty good um, handy cam. Um, and I graduated to Final Cut, which is a little bit complicated, but still fun to jo to use. Kate, I was I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about like um, who the Vlog Brothers are and how like what the what's your story for like how you discovered them and what it was that you liked about them so much. Um, the Vlog Brothers are a pair of brothers who have this incredibly amazing community that they've created over the years. I think they started in 2007. John Green is the first of them, and he is currently a New York Times bestselling author, and his most recent book, The Fall in the Stars, in Our Stars, is being made into a movie, um, and that's very exciting. And so he, when he started vlogging, already had a fair but bit of an online presence, but it, it's nowhere where it is like where it is now, where he has hundreds of thousands of followers and, and subscribers. And Hank Green is, um, he created several eco websites in the beginning of the um, 2000s, and he was working on that. And then together, they decided to start a project where they would talk to each other and through John's um, notoriety and participation from the outside world they they got um more and more important and it's really interesting the community that's been built up around them which is about um all things geek and celebrating what is nerdy and what is often 
um, ignored. So they have this new channel called The Brains Group that they um, are directing that follows someone who exhumes animals for a living. Um, it's just a very interesting thing. And I started, because um, it made me realize that video could be more than just um, viral videos, more than just a punchline, and it could be an actual conversation and a, a very meaningful one at that. Uh, yeah, you know, one of the things about their little plan to do the Vlogbrothers channel was they actually agreed to not talk to each other or communicate with each other in any form for a whole year other than via the vlog. So, you know, no email, no, you know, no text uh, communication in, in any way. And I think they said they might allow each other to talk on the phone, but they were, you know, they were basically going to only be communicating with each other via the vlog. So, you know, one would do a vlog, the other one would reply in the vlog, and that's how they were going to communicate for the whole year. Yeah, I really, I mean, the thing I really like about the story is that their sort of fame and notoriety kind of played off of each other. You know, it started off that because John Green was an author and had fans, it brought a small people to watch this conversation between him and, and Hank Green. But then, you know, Hank Green is, I don't know if you'd call him a filker, but like a <laughs> wizard rocker. He writes a lot, he writes a lot of songs about the Harry Potter world. And so he, um, he had a song about, I guess, the last book or something. And, um, and that video of him singing that song went viral and brought this huge mm. influx of new fans to the vlogcast. And then because of that new influx of fans, it allowed John Green's next book to hit the times list, which then created this sort of, you know, uh, new burst of fandom for him. Because it was on the times list, it brought new fans <laughs> to the blog. And then it just kind of grew and grew mm -hmm. from there. Mm -hmm. To the point now where I guess one of the uh, Google grants that Kate was talking about earlier, they received a Google grant to start um, a new uh, show, a series of shows on YouTube. Well, when Kate was mentioning that, that was before we started recording. So, Kate, why don't, maybe could you just repeat that for the benefit of our listeners? Oh, OK. Um, last year, they, YouTube, in an effort to try to figure out, right now, YouTube is kind of straddling two worlds. They're they're this burgeoning hub of online independent content, but also they're trying to figure out how to also address the fact that there's a TV-like quality to them, and they're trying to try to mix their new media with old media. So they developed this YouTube original content initiative where they gave some of the top independent content creators on YouTube a TV-like grant where they could take, um, you know, depending on how much money, some of it was smaller, but a couple hundred thousand dollars and see what they could do with that, what shows they could create. And some were more successful than others. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you were sort of saying none of them has really made back the money that was invested in them, right? Yeah, they were expected to do it within the first year. And I think that maybe one or two channels at most have out-earned that um, grant through, mm. at least through advertising alone. And that would be source-fed because it's a very small operation. It doesn't take much to make, but it's very viral and... Um, very it's it's a news show basically one of the interesting things that john and hank green have been doing is this new venture called subable mm -hmm. which is an online service that curates interesting youtube content if you're a fan you can subscribe and you can sort of donate money in a kickstarter kind of form mm. um so you can watch all the content for free but if you're a fan you can send in money to just kind of support the shows and content that you like it's an interesting attempt to 
break away from the ad connected model. Uh, you know, I, I think that as, as the internet evolves and internet entertainment evolves, th- there's going to be a point where the amount of content and the budget at which that content is being produced can't be sustained by YouTube ads alone. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we were mentioning that there was this Sword and Laser, uh, you know, Sword and Laser is a, a similar podcast to this one. They discuss fantasy and science fiction books, and they had a video show uh, that Felicia mentioned on Geek and Sundry. And if you ever watched it, the production values are amazing. I, I would watch it. And I'm like, oh, my God, they, I'm so jealous. They have a dragon, smoke dragon head. And, you know, they have all said and also, you know, also the like, little animations. And mm-hmm. I, um, I was like, it must cost like thousands of dollars. I don't even know, thousands of dollars, I would imagine, to produce one of these episodes. And it's just really hard for me to say, uh, see how a book show is going to recoup that kind of mm-hmm. uh, investment. Although I wish I could figure out some way to do it because, you know, yeah. it was pretty cool. I, I mean, I'd just be happy if we could uh, record in a studio together as opposed to doing everything via Skype. I, I don't I don't need a whole dragon studio with uh, <laughs> like they got. But, um, you know, if we could just have like if we could just be sitting in the same place with mics like and you know that would be nice. John, you have a little bit of experience with Lightspeed of having people be willing to pay different amounts of money for the content that you're providing. You know, some people want to just lurk on the site and Mm -hmm. read all the stories that you publish, but other people, I know that you've told me stories in the past about people who are totally willing to just be like, I'm going to throw a bunch of money at this because I think it's Mm -hmm. awesome and I want to support it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, because Lightspeed, we do, we have lifetime subscriptions and we have a couple of lifetime subscribers. So it's like $500 to buy a lifetime subscription. But of course, like Matt says, you know, most of the content is online for free. Um, we started adding, uh, some, uh, some exclusive content to the ebook editions, but, uh, the majority of the content's online for free. So nobody really has to pay for it. But like you're paying for like the exclusivity of, of the content that's in the ebook. You're paying for the convenience of the ebook format and that kind of thing. Um, and so like a lot of people, you know, even, even though they're not, you know, they might they might not be doing the big ticket lifetime subscription, but they might just buy regular subscriptions and when the you know whereas they could uh, totally just read it for free. So um, yeah, I mean I think a lot of people are willing to do that kind of thing. Um, I recently did a reader survey, and actually if you're a Lightspeed reader, you can still fill out the reader survey and uh, you have a chance to win a free subscription. But um, you know go to lightspeedmagazine.com/survey if you want to. But uh, in the survey, I was actually asking some questions, sort of asking people like, hey, so do you know who the publisher of Lightspeed is? And I had a couple different options, and it, and, and it became very clear very quickly that most people don't know who the publisher is, and they think, and, and, and they don't realize it's me. You know, it's just like me. It's just some, some dude, me. Um, it's not like a major company or anything. And so, and then, so one of my follow-up questions was, now knowing that, that I'm the publisher, does that change your thoughts about whether or not to support the magazine financially? Um, and a lot of them said yes, that, you know, they didn't realize that it was just me publishing it. They thought that it was like a company that was publishing the magazine or something. And so, obviously, if it's just me publishing it, it they, they feel like, oh, well, that's more worthy of my financial support than just, you know, feeding the beast of some major company. Yeah, well, that's funny because sometimes people will post bad reviews for the show and say, like, these hosts suck. Just replace the hosts and it'll be so much better. <laughs> like, yeah. um, if you replace the host, there's no one else working on this. I don't know, like, <laughs> who you think is, who, who else you think is involved. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, so yeah, so maybe there is a profit model that would make uh, doing a video book show viable. But I guess I think that leads into the issue of, you know, does video benefit a book show, really? Mm-hmm. Like, do you need to see the people's faces when they're talking about a, inherently non-visual mm-hmm. kind of media i i wondered that a lot with a lot of the the things that i was watching for this like i watched a lot of the stuff on geek and sundry and uh there yeah there was a lot of things that like if you took away the video and it was just a audio show like it was just like 
basically the same as Geek's Guide, just an audio podcast like this. Um, I don't know that there was gonna there was gonna be much of a difference. Like um, on on Geek and Sundry, they have Storyboard, which was just like a Google, a Google Hangout discussion, and and Felicia has the Vaginal Fantasy, which is also a Geek uh, a Google Hangout uh, sort of recorded session like that. And it's like both of those. It's like you don't really need to see the people to to enjoy that content. You can just have it as a podcast instead. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wonder if it's worth doing all that video stuff as well. And it seems like video is a lot harder to edit, right? I mean, maybe Matt and Kate yeah. can, speak, can speak to this, but like how much latitude do you have to edit audio, the audio when the video is included? Well, you can fake audio much easier than you can fake video um there are some things just in the language of the moving image that it's it's incredibly difficult to break those rules and not have your audience feel like something's wrong with it even if they don't know what it is that's wrong with it um i learned this term for the first time this week that's amazing it's called the frankenbite <laughs> anyone who's ever edited audio and listens to or watches a reality television show will be familiar with this phenomenon, even if they don't know the term itself. It's when a testimonial interview with a reality show contestant uh, is hacked to pieces to the point where the original statement is completely indecipherable, but the editor has sculpted a new statement to better fit the narrative of the show. Mm. So you'll hear like, you'll hear something that it'll sound like this. It'll sound like, I think Dave is a jerk right <laughs> and but now jerks from one sentence and i think is from a sentence three episodes ago and it all just gets mashed together to create the story that they want to in pure audio it's so much easier to uh cut those things up if you were just doing that with a face on camera shot it would be very difficult you need to add in you know, other images to mask some of those audio cuts. Yeah, I, I've really been struck having done so much audio editing for this show now, how I watch TV and I can tell where it's been edited, and I mm. never would have noticed that before. Um, but like, uh, Kate, why don't you tell us how much uh, editing do you do on your videos? What's what's your been your experience with that? Um, I, I do quite a bit of editing on my videos, and that's just because there's so much of it that you don't want to include for the final product like you like you were talking about. But it's it's mostly simple. I think I think as long as it looks like a good quality product with decent lighting and with, you know, a straight on camera shot that's above four hundred and eighty pixels, um, I don't think it would be that difficult to make it seem super professional, even though you guys are mostly experienced with audio. Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I've actually noticed with vlogs, it's almost sort of like a convention of the form that you have these very obvious cuts, mm -hmm. you know, that they're not even trying to make, not even trying to mask the fact that they're a cut. That's almost part of the appeal or something. It's supposed to be. Um, there's two things that have really risen because of talking vlogging, and it's that it, you're supposed to speak faster because supposedly, like, it's supposed to sound more interesting and more exciting. And obviously, you get more words in for your three or four minute video, because I think YouTube's, it's a little bit more frenetic than a a podcast. And then also you've got this these jump cuts and you just cut from sentence to sentence because on YouTube there's no time for breath or <laughs> a sneeze. So. Yeah. I was actually wondering, Kate, I mean, you're kicking our ass as far as YouTube views <laughs> and subscribers and stuff are are doing. Do you have any um theories on what makes what why your videos have been as popular as they have been? Um I just I really lucked out, um, and I was lucky enough that 
people found my videos and they shared them. So, but you know, you just need like a blog to, you know, if a blog posts about it, I, there's no really secret trick. It's, I guess it's just like sort of this, just sharing good content and good content rises. I mean, for, for YouTube, I think the, one of the issues is for us is that our show is obviously an audio product. It's not a video product. I mean, you're putting it on YouTube and you have the image there, but when people go to YouTube, I think most of the time people want the video experience because it is a different experience. Like I, I can't really explain it, like why I might watch a video of someone talking, but then I wouldn't listen to that same podcast necessarily. Um, and specifically when I go to YouTube, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not necessarily going there because I want to sit and listen to something. I'm going there because I want to watch something. And if there's nothing to watch, it's just listening. Then that's, you know, I, I think that we're not going to get a lot of viewers, you know, put viewers in quotes, we're not going to get a lot of viewers for the podcast there. Um, we'd be more likely to, you know, get people to like say, oh, I've discovered that. Now I'm going to, um, you know, go subscribe to the podcast and I'll listen to it while I'm on my commute or whatever. Yeah, I think we should explain that we take all of our podcasts and post them on YouTube just to, as one more place that people could find the podcast. Um, and most of our subscribers are, are not through YouTube. Um, and then, and, and yeah, there's just sort of a slide that has our logo and our photos and stuff like that. And I didn't expect those to set the world on fire or anything. Um, a couple of them have gotten a couple thousand views. But it's just really striking that, you know, someone will just post a picture of their, you know, falling down the stairs or something, and that gets <laughs> like 5 billion views. And you, you expect, you know, that you, you sort of get the impression that anything that gets, gets posted on YouTube will at least get like 10,000 views. And mm -hmm. that's not true. You can post really good stuff on it. And right. it can just nobody will watch it at all. And the other thing is, for every falling down the stairs video that goes viral, there's a couple hundred thousand that mm -hmm. are just someone banging their knee. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, uh, I, I I emailed you about this, Dave, after after I watched a bunch of those Geek and Sundry things, uh, including the ones that I mentioned that were Google Hangouts, and I I wondered, you know, should we try recording the show using a Google Hangout? I mean, because not necessarily so that we record the video, but just because like it felt to me like, especially when we're doing a larger panel like this, like it would actually be really useful to be able to see everybody else, not just because it's easier to talk to someone when you can see them, but because we can give hand signals and stuff like if I want to jump in. Uh, but if we did do that, like we could conceivably experiment with recording a show and putting it on, you know, like putting it on YouTube or whatever. Like, I mean, I don't know, like it would be hard because like you couldn't edit it like you're used to being able to edit it, right? So I don't know if it would actually be viable at all, but I mean, it could be something we could try as an experiment experiment, maybe if we, uh, you know, pick the right show that we thought and we had set up very firm rules for what we could uh, talk about. And like, you know, everybody only had like two minutes or whatever, you know, and we had a timer, you know, um, <laughs> or something like that. Like, I, I don't know, it'd be very challenging, but it might be something worth experimenting with. Well, I was thinking if we did a show like on our favorite book covers or something, you know, it would make sense to have that be a video because then we could actually show the book covers we're talking about, like stuff like that. You know, if it had some visual component, it might be worth experimenting with a video format. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. So um, what do people just think about YouTube generally? Because I used to be a huge fan of YouTube and I would spend all day on it. But ever since the ads came on and now there's like these stupid, you can put these stupid like text bars over the video and they just drive me crazy. And I just feel like, especially like when I, like I want to say I just want to see the ad for, a, uh, see the trailer for a new movie. And I type that in and then I start watching it. And then like 10 seconds in, I realize it's actually a fan made trailer and it sucks. And, you know, and then I'll type in the, I'm like, no, that's not the right video. So then I'll type in the title again and then it'll start playing a 30 second ad. And I'm like, oh, this is just insane that it plays an ad when I, you know, just watched the beginning of a video that turned out to be the wrong video. And I just wonder like, yeah, what's people, do people feel like these 
that YouTube is just going down the drain? Are there alternatives? Let's talk about that. Uh, I mean, I you know, I'm surprised actually how much I enjoy doing the prep for this post game. Like I, when you first suggested the idea, I didn't think that I was that big of a YouTube fan. But then when I was like looking back through my viewing history, I was like, oh, actually, there was like a lot of stuff on here that I actually really loved watching. And I mean, it's mostly like viral stuff that somebody linked to somewhere. And I mean, not necessarily hugely viral, but just like some geek that I know linked to it. And, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I really enjoyed. And then as I was doing research and I was like really trying to like, I was checking out Geek and Sundry and I was uh, checking out some sort of related stuff to things that I watched. And it's like, I found like a lot of stuff that was like really, really funny that I like really like now. And I'm going like, to definitely try to look for more. But yeah, and I mean, I know what you're saying. I mean, the, the ad stuff is kind of annoying. And I mean, there's there's like multiple ads on each one sometimes. Like there'll be like the banner along the bottom that you have to click to kill and then there's like another little box in the right hand corner or the left hand corner and it's like what why what i don't even understand get it go away uh, i have seen a couple sort of youtube alternatives but it doesn't seem like they've really caught on there's things like vimeo and and, and other sort of services that are basically the same thing but they don't seem to have the same community sort of feel that youtube does well it's a different kind i mean each one has a different kind of community Vimeo's gigantic it's a huge institution but there's a style difference between the two of them YouTube deliberately looks unprofessional. They do that specifically to encourage non-professionals to produce content for the site. Vimeo, on the other hand, is trying to be the slicker, more corporate, more uh, professional kind of uh, video aggregation site where if you are an artist or an editor or a designer, Vimeo may be more for you. I think that YouTube has definitely taken a turn for the less than user friendly. Actually, when I started vlogging, they weren't totally profitable. I don't think, I think they were actually a losing venture, um, the company itself, when it was bought by Google. And it's, I think now we've taken, now it's suddenly um, very focused on profit. And we can see that because of the ads, um, the influx of them all of a sudden. Um, the partnership program was a wonderful thing um, when it, al it allowed uh, independent creators to place ads on their video, and that was a wonderful thing. Um, but now ads are put on almost every video. And um, also the subscription model where you could subscribe to one channel like Geek and Sundry, like Matt's videos has changed dramatically, and it make has actually caused several of my friends who use YouTube and making videos on it as their primary source of income, it has caused their view counts to fall dramatically. And that's because um, instead of immediately presenting users with their subscription list in the videos that they've said they've wanted to see, um, YouTube instead pre presents a mix of viral videos and related videos, and it's, it's not the same. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, one of my favorite things about YouTube, actually, you know, regardless of its problems with ads and stuff, is that almost any clip that you want to find, that you want to reference to to someone, like, you can find it on YouTube. I mean, it's, and they're not always legit, you know, but, like, when we did our sword fighting post game and we were just find it, trying to find the fight, the best the sword fighting scenes in film, like, that was amazing. And I created, like, a 70-item playlist that you can go watch. And, you know, so anybody who watches that episode can then go back and watch all of the sword fighting scenes or most of the sword fighting scenes that we talked about in the episode. And I think that's cool, you know? And it's, like, it's just, like... It's it's allowing people to share stuff and, and talk about stuff in a way that wouldn't really be possible without something like YouTube. 
And, uh, and so like, for instance, when I was doing the prep for this show too, like I created a playlist called YouTube for geeks and we can share the link for that, um, in our, uh, on geeksguideshow.com. But, uh, I created this playlist that I was just sort of adding like the first episode of the different series. So you can sort of check those out and, uh, you know, a bunch of it's Geek and Sundry, a bunch of it's uh, some other stuff that I discovered as I was going along. And then I also created one that's just like just my favorites, since we're not going to get to talk about all of my favorites. But um, I, I made a, a list of some of my favorites as well. So uh, I, I just think that's cool that we can do that kind of thing and just share it. It's like it's almost like curating an anthology, um, but like, you know, a short film anthology. Mm. Well, then the other big drawback to YouTube that sort of strikes me as someone who just uses it fairly casually is that it just seems to have the dumbest, most vicious comments of any, <laughs> oh, like anywhere yeah. I go on the internet. It, it was funny, actually, you know, Felicia Day, um, in one of the other interviews I listened to, said that her experience on YouTube had taught her that the worst superpower you could possibly have would be telepathy, because it would just be like reading YouTube comments 24 hours a day. Huh, yeah. And uh, so is that just my imagination? Or is are YouTube comments literally the worst comments? <laughs> Oh no! Yes, they YouTube are. video comments are the worst comments in the world. Um, there. So one of my all-time favorite YouTube videos is Charlie bit my finger, which for the one of the six billion of you listening who's never heard <laughs> of this video, it's basically two British toddlers, uh, brother, two brothers sitting in a chair, kind of hanging out, and the little one bites the big one's finger, and over the course of about five to ten seconds, the older brother goes through, like, six emotional states. From amusement, to surprise, to pain, to shrieking agony, to uh, defensive uh, hurt, and and then finally uh, amusement. <laughs> it's an amazing video, and it deserves the 180 million views <laughs> that it has. Um, but if you go to YouTube right now, right this second as you're listening to this, and type in Charlie Bit My Finger, and look at the first five comments, they will all be profanity-laden, pornographic, uh, advertisements, super critical, disgusting, filthy, horrendous stuff. And I know that because the top five comments on that video are always that. And if you look, if you're on the page right now and you're looking, you'll see that the most recent one will have been less than an hour ago. And it's just because it's just, you know, people are always on it, just being offensive, selling their own stuff, trying to draw attention to themselves. No, it just occurred to me that like the comments are definitely the worst ever, but uh, I, I I figured like it's probably especially bad for women just because there's so many misogynist assholes that seem to leave comments there. Uh, so like Felicia with her shows, like I imagine she must have to put up with a lot of BS and uh, like you know the um, uh, Annalie Newitz and uh, and and Esther Inglis Arkel from io9, you know they did this. Uh, video show on YouTube for a while. And uh, as soon as I saw them doing that, um, I know Dave and I talked about it at some point and, and I was like, oh, I bet the comments of that are just like terrible, just like the worst vilest shit, you know, just because you're like, there's two women um, doing a show and it's like, oh, I just, I, I can predict what the comments are going to be just because, you know, it's like, oh, like they're not like supermodels or whatever. And so like, you know, everyone's going to comment on their appearance and, and, you know, it's like, it's just like repugnant. Well, Kate, what has been your experience with YouTube commenters? I've been lucky enough that I, I since I'm not one, of, I'm not Charlie bit my finger. I, I'm not anywhere <laughs> near anything like that. I, I've been lucky that I, the the community that I'm part of is a small supportive community that would never leave a comment like that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't generally men who haven't found my videos 
one in particular that got a little scary. Um, and actually, there was recently a discussion um, as a result of, well, actually, currently, this weekend, right now, VidCon is going on. And yesterday, there was a discussion at the Becoming YouTube and the Women on YouTube um, panels about why there aren't more women creators in the top 100 um, subscribed. And there are many reasons for this, and they're all unfortunate. But one of them is because there's quite a lot of harassment that occurs when mm -hmm. you start getting up there. Um, all right. Well, we're sort of like getting toward the end of our time here, but why don't we run through uh, some of the best channels and videos and stuff that we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, we have this whole big list here, but um, uh, maybe I'll just mention a couple that people recommend that our listeners recommended. So you've got How It Should Have Ended. They do uh, movies, you know, they, they sort of make fun of movies and point out big plot holes or just have an improved ending or something. Uh, uh, I mean, like, I guess the one that sticks in my mind is they have one, it's Lord of the Rings, how it should have ended, and they just uh, have the eagle fly them to the <laughs> volcano and drop the ring in, and they fly home, and they're like, imagine if we had walked that whole way, how hard that would have been. <laughs> yeah. I think there is stuff in the book that says why they can't do that with the eagles, mm -hmm. but it's still funny. Um, oh, like the Red Letter Media, um, actually, a couple of people actually, have you, see, have you guys seen the seven-part takedown of The Phantom Menace? Yeah, it's almost as long as the Phantom <laughs> Yeah. It is epic and amazing. The part that sticks in my mind from that is that uh, they asked just sort of people on the street to describe the characters from the original movies, you know, Princess Leia and Han Solo, and they say all this stuff about their personalities. And then they're like, now describe the personality of Princess Amidala. And people are like, um, <laughs> she's a princess? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, in terms of Star Wars related content, one of my all time favorites is, uh, Star Wars Uncut. So, Star Wars Uncut was this crowdsourced fan film where, uh, this guy asked his viewers to film 15 seconds of Star Wars A New Hope. He got hundreds of submissions of all these people, you know, putting together these, like, tiny little short films. And, uh, it's just like, like in their backyards in like cheap costumes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, some of them are animated. Some of them are spoofing old video game styles. A lot of them are just people in bathrobes in their backyards with painted sticks. But he then assembled them all into the film and had them edited and smoothed out and used awesome sound effects and like blended it all together until he had a brand new version of Star Wars A New Hope. And watching this movie, I mean, I remember when I first watched it, I was like, oh, I'll watch five minutes of this. <laughs> and I got to like 15 minutes in and I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm going to sit here and watch this whole thing. <laughs> and I did. It was like watching the movie again for the first time because it gives you this new sense of discovery. You know, you know what happens in Star Wars, but you don't know how it's going to happen again. I'm really looking forward. They're working on an Empire Strikes Back one now. I cannot wait to watch it. I think that there should be more stuff like this. You know, if there is a leader sort of orchestrating really quality crowdsourced content. I think the result can be really amazing. There was, I don't know if you ever saw ASCII Star Wars, but like someone was trying to do all of the new hope and using ASCII art. Yeah. And I mean, I, he did, I don't know, 45 minutes of it or something, but you just look at this you're like, Oh my God, how long <laughs> must it have taken to do this? And it's funny. Cause if you look at the FAQ, the first question is like, why? Oh, for the love of God, why? <laughs> <laughs> right. Answer is just like, yeah, it seems like a good idea at the time. <laughs> 
But, I mean, actually, on the subject of Star Wars, though, uh, there's, like, a lot of great Star Wars content, like, that's sort of spoofing things. So, like, on, on Geek and Sundry, they have Space Janitors, which is basically a, a, it's a, it's a comedy show that is basically spoofing Star Wars, and it's just the, the, the main characters are Space Janitors, like, on the Star Destroyer or something. And, um, but then, um, also the Oral Knots, that's another channel that has, like, a whole ton of stuff, and including some of my favorites, but one of them was, uh, a show called Jedi Party, and it's just, like, it's just like a parody of Phantom Menace, and it's like instead of going to stop the Trade Federation, like uh, Obi Wan and um, and Qui Gon, they're like actually just there for a party, and they're jerks, and like uh, you know they're. <laughs> it, it's just really funny. And we should say that that's Oral Knots, A U R A L. <laughs> yes. O R A L. Right. That would be a different no- channel. <laughs> um. Well, I, actually, just speaking of Star Wars, it kind of makes me think of Star Wars Kid. And like, oh, the dark, the, yeah. like the dark side of YouTube, and yeah, oh my goodness. I don't know if you guys have read like what happened to him, but he like was like bullied, and he had to change schools, and is in therapy, and all sorts mm-hmm. of crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's sad, you know. You um, you should have a choice if you're going to be posted on YouTube mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that this technology has appeared very quickly, and sort of faster than. Uh, societal norms and ethical questions can be defined and answered. It happened before it could become uh, publicly accepted that that kind of thing is not okay. See, Kate, do you have any favorite channels or videos you wanted to mention? I guess, I mean, we've we've mentioned the Vlogbrothers, and they have a hankering of the Vlogbrothers has a show called SciShow, which kind of talks about popular science and debunks some of the myths, and I think that would be that, I mean, it's very enjoyable to watch and it's very interesting. And then also, um, I guess Feminist Frequency by Anita Sarkeesian. She um, analyzes some tropes in science fiction and games, and that's always interesting. So those would be my two recommendations. Okay, cool. Actually, speaking of science, some people wanted us to mention Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson, which is a video show on the Nerdist Network. See, Matt, you want to throw in a couple here? Yeah, I have a lot of uh, favorite channels. I'm really big into like video game Let's Play. I already mentioned Machinima, but Let's Play is more of, you can actually sit and watch somebody play through a video game. So if it's on a system that you don't have, but you want to sort of have the cultural experience of playing the game, you can watch it kind of like a movie. Yeah, Dave, you do that all the time, don't you? Yeah, that <laughs> there was the, I forget where I heard this, but there was a guy who says, I beat it on YouTube. And that's <laughs> like that just means I just watch through the game on YouTube and then you don't have to pay for the game and stuff. And yeah, I do that all the time. I actually just, you know, there's the, just this zombie game called um, The Last of Us, uh, which is actually really well written, I thought. And so I, um, you know, I started watching the Let's Play. And after, you know, maybe an hour, I was bored with the gameplay section, but I was still interested in the story. So I just found someone who would just cut all the cinematic scenes together into like a basically an hour long movie. And I just watched that whole thing and I loved it. Yeah, it's an awesome game. Um, I, I don't know. I really like uh, I'm, I'm really kind of getting into esports and uh, like pro gaming. And one of the things about that that I really like is that there's so many, not just like ESPN style produced competitions that you can watch online, either recorded videos on YouTube or streaming live on a site like Twitch TV. But some of the shoutcasters or commentators uh, that come out of that world become internet celebrities themselves. I guess uh, Day9, Sean Plott is one of the biggest. He has a series that just has so many viewers, and he, even though he's not even a professional player anymore of StarCraft, he is probably the most famous person to come out of that esports world. Um, 
There's a, a magic commentator that I really like named Marshall Sutcliffe who runs a podcast called Limited Resources about playing uh, limited Magic the Gathering. And he'll do not just like strategy conversations, but also gameplay videos where he'll take you through a game and talk about all of the decisions that he's making. If you're interested in learning to play uh, either a game like Magic Better or a video game like StarCraft or even something like The, the Last of Us, you can find that on on YouTube and and experience it, you know, and, and learn how to be better. Although I will say that my all-time favorite show on YouTube is um, from this pro gamer named Frankie on PC. And uh, there was this mod game, and I think, John, you and I might have talked about this at some point, uh, a game called DayZ. And the way it works, it's a mod of a very realistic military shooter. Um, but the game was modded so that this it all takes place on this one enormous map. Uh, and you spawn on the map somewhere with an empty backpack and your shoes, and you have to survive the zombie apocalypse. So there are zombies all over this map, and, uh, and you just have to, you know, scrounge for food and guns and supplies. And then meanwhile, the zombies are all trying to eat you. And the other players, it sort of is a, a MMO, a persistent world. The, the other players are even more dangerous than the zombies because they may find you and think, oh, this guy's got a backpack full of food. That's much easier than going into a grocery store filled with zombies. I'll just murder this guy and take all of his stuff. And there's permadeath in the game. So if you die, you're, that's it. It's over. So what this guy Frankie does is he just plays the game and sort of comments his way through it. And because the social interaction between the other players is so relevant to the game, it takes on the feel of this serialized zombie survival horror show where you have to watch him sort of stay alive in this in this game. And, it you know, the series itself spans, you know, dozens of episodes and hours of content. It's so gripping, even though it's just gameplay videos of a video game uh actually speaking of videos and it came up in the interview with felicia but the the ultimate series there's this video online there's actually it's a whole series where warren specter who's the legendary game designer he interviews different game designers and so there's one called warren specter interviews richard garriott about his game design career and it really covers his whole you know career and a lot of stuff about the ultimate games and it's just really interesting and that's the stuff like if there was no youtube you would never be able to you know this isn't gonna be on netflix or anything you know it's it's way too specialized and um there's a lot of stuff like that, like, you know, my favorite author is Roger Zelazny, and for years and years and years, I looked for some video of him online, and I could never find anything. And finally, on YouTube, this video pops up, it call, it's called um, Book 5, it's like Book V, Roman numeral, Roger Zelazny reads at 4th Street Fantasy Convention 1986. And <laughs> this is, as far as I know, this is the only video of Roger Zelazny online, at least the only one I certainly I could find after years of searching. And it's just amazing, yeah, that stuff like this pops up on YouTube and you can actually find it. Yeah, there was a old French like Saturday morning cartoon show and I couldn't remember what it was called. I just remembered that when I was a little kid, I used to wake up very early in the morning and sneak downstairs and watch this cartoon with my brother at like 5.36 in the morning. And it was like an old, it was a syndicated thing. So it wasn't even anywhere close to being on the original network that it was on. And I couldn't remember the name of it. And so just like eventually on YouTube, just typing in search terms and trying different combinations and sort of trying to guess at it, I finally found it. Um, and it was so amazing to think that like YouTube's this amazing resource for archiving uh, childhood memories that people have. 
Oh, actually, uh, on the subject of video games, I just had one other thing I wanted to mention because it's so amazing. Uh, but there's a trailer for this video game called Leviathan Warships, and <laughs> it's just so hilarious. Like the trailer, it just it goes for pure humor, and it's like the game isn't humorous at all, as far as I can tell. It's just like a, a, a warship strategy game. But they just they do this weird like sort of Barry White type voice, uh, and, and there's music in the background, and it's like you know Leviathan Warships, and and they make all these ship puns, so they're like ship. Just got real, and <laughs> and then they're just they're describing. Oh, I, saw, the, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, they're like describing the gameplay and stuff, but then it's like, oh, it's so, it's so hilarious. You just have to go check it out because it's like, um, <laughs> you know, and it's like at at the end of it, it's like you know, you'll ship yourself. The problem with advertising is that because companies have to put so much money behind a campaign, it's terrifying to try to you know make a daring experiment like that commercial, but on the web the risk is so much lower that you can take chances and end up, you know, creating a hit for yourself just out of a daring ad campaign. Uh, I just also just want to mention a couple of other listener suggestions. Uh, I, I don't know anything about these, but people recommended the slow-mo guys. I think they just like shoot stuff and show it in slow motion or something. They're awesome. Um, the SMBC theater and CinemaSins uh, is, I guess, somewhat similar to how it should have ended, where they just kind of, they kind of go through movies and say what's wrong, what, like their problems mm-hmm. with it, and count count them off. Yes, CinemaSins is entertaining. I like that. Um, I I didn't know about it either, but I watched some because of this. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So let's uh, let's wrap this up, and because uh, we could go on all day with <laughs> some, uh, YouTube videos, and uh, but why don't we uh, probably post some more of these on our Facebook page, and you know we invite people to. Uh, you know, if there's anything we didn't mention that you think we should check out, you know, mention it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Um, but otherwise, I think we're going to wrap things up there. Uh, so, Matt, thanks for joining us for the eighth time. Great to be here. And Kate, thanks for joining us for the first time. Thanks so much for having me. No, thank- no thanks to me for joining us for the 91st time. <laughs> and thanks to John for joining us for the 91st time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thanks to Dave for hosting for the 91st time. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) And of course, big thanks again to Felicia Day for being our guest today. So last week, we were very excited to pass 300 ratings on iTunes. Now, those ratings help move us toward the top of the podcast list. They're the main way that people decide whether or not a podcast is worth trying out. And they just make us feel good. So if you're a longtime listener, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. And we'd like to give a big thank you to everyone who helped us hit 300 ratings, including these fine folks who recently wrote us five-star reviews. So we've got Ruben BC, Zodiac 308, Rocket Ace, Shannon Ramp, Jackie Glee, Jazz Sexton, Grimsick, Gem Gamer, and Dana JD. And Jazz Sexton also came out to my reading last month at Barnes & Noble in Pittsburgh. So hi, Jazz. It was very nice meeting you. We'd also like to give a special thank you to Carl Watson, subscriber number 35, for making a second contribution via the PayPal button on our website. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on subscribe. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, 
tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.